your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 12. Uh, Luke chapter 12. We're going to be looking at Luke 12, beginning in verse 8. In honor of the reading of God's holy and perfect word, if you are physically able, would you please stand with me and follow along as I read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. This is what the word of God says. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men... The Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself Or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we continue in our sermon series today in uh, the book of Luke. And we're up to verse 8. Last week we looked through the first seven verses of this chapter. And today we pick it up in verse 8. You'll notice there's a saying right there in verse 8, and I tell you. Uh, It's similar to a saying you'll find from our text last week in verse 4, and I tell you. It notes a shift in thought and what Jesus is talking about. Not a massive shift, but a shift nonetheless. And it's usually a shift to ensure the listeners, in our case the readers, are paying attention. Uh, And so you'll look back at verse 3, if you will. Jesus is coming out of giving these illustrations of darkness versus light, that which was said in the dark we put in the light, that's what we said in the private rooms of homes will be, you know, shouted from the rooftops. And he's like, but here, listen, verse four, I tell you, like, listen, pay attention, this is what I'm saying. I tell you, my friends, don't fear people who can kill the body only, but fear God who can kill the body and send to hell. Similarly, in verse seven, uh, Jesus is coming out of a time when he's using these word pictures of us being worth more than sparrows and that Jesus knows every single hair on our head. He knows us so, so well, so, so intimately. And then verse eight, he says, and I tell you like, but, but seriously, this really isn't about the sparrows. This isn't about the hairs in your head. Listen, I tell you, everyone who acknowledged me before men, the son of man will acknowledge me before the angels of God and so on and so on. And so it's usually a sign of Jesus saying, okay, but all eyes up here, but listen, this is what I'm really saying. And then he says something pretty pretty deep, right? After the first, I tell you in verse four, stuff got pretty real. This isn't just about hypocrisy. In fact, it's not even about people primarily. It's about God who can send people to heaven and hell. And verse eight today in our text gets more real. In fact, Jesus makes three pretty bold statements. The first two of which similar to last week involve uh, the difference between being saved and going to heaven and being unsaved and going to hell. Now, a quick read through this portion of scripture can oftentimes leave people thinking, including and even especially believers, uh, that there is something that you can do or perhaps something you can say or fail to do and fail to say that can have an impact on your eternal destiny. And it's worth asking the question, like, do, do we have that much pull, right, in life? Like, is there something I can just, boom, say, and all of a sudden I was going to heaven and now I'm no longer going to heaven? Or something I can fail to say and I was headed for glory with heaven and now all of a sudden that ship has sailed? 
And so that's not the case. I can let you know that right from the beginning. And we're going to look at that. But before we look at that, I want to take a little, a little trip down a road of soteriology. Soteriology is just a fancy word or a big word for the study of salvation or the science, if you will, of salvation, how salvation works. And for that, I'd like to ask you to turn, I won't be back to Luke 12 in a minute, but turn over to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians and chapter 2. Which brings us to our first point, which is this. You can't save yourself. Uh, You cannot save yourself. I think what you'll see as we read through Ephesians chapter 2, which we'll do kind of quickly, is that the only thing you brought to your salvation is, quite frankly, need You didn't bring ability. You didn't bring anything to offer. There was not an an exchange. Hey, I'll give you this and God, you give me salvation. And God was like, that's a sweet deal. No, the only thing you brought to your salvation is the sin and the death from which you needed to be saved and from which I need to be saved. So pick it up in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. Uh, We read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so if you look at Uh, What the Lord is telling us through his word here, through the Apostle Paul, uh, he's saying that our B.C. days, right, our before Christ days, we need to realize that no matter how we were saved or when we were saved, even if we were saved from a very early age, we were not spiritually sick. We certainly weren't spiritually well. We were spiritually dead, dead. Look at verse 1, and you were dead. Look at verse 2, and then it talks about what we did, like you once walked, uh, verse three, you, or you once lived, uh, you were by nature children of wrath, but that ship has sailed. You really came to the table as spiritually dead. And if you look at all the things that Paul is telling us that we did, they're all evil and they're all past tense. Again, verse one, following the course of this world, you once walked. following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, verse three, uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Um, and we were not spiritually sick. We were spiritually dead. The only thing we brought to the table was our need. We had nothing to offer because we weren't spiritually well and we weren't spiritually sick that we could kind of muster up something to give the Lord. We were dead. And so thankfully, it was God's mercy and love and resurrection power that has given us who believe spiritual life. Pick it up in verse 4. But God, right, so the first three verses were all about us and what we brought to the table, namely nothing and just our deadness, if that's even a word. Uh, One through three just says we've brought nothing to the table. And then four, there's a switch. But God, on the other hand, he actually brought like quite a lot. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Made us alive. Didn't say, but God woke us up. Or God gave us a poke and we were like, all right, all right. It said God made us alive. Death to life. 
And so you'll find that the Bible roundly, consistently, always attributes salvation as a work of God and only God and nobody else other than God. Now, as you read through your Bible, you think that's, it's kind of weird to say, like, I, I don't dislike that. I like how that feels, but there's a lot of commands in the Bible that tell me to do things. Right? Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I feel like you're saying, if I do this, I will be saved. If then. Uh, Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that uh, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, if I do this, I will be saved. I feel like there's a lot of responsibility on my part. And that's 100% the case. We're not talking about a lack of responsibility. We're talking about the difference between responsibility and ability. And so you have the responsibility. I have the responsibility. Every, every human being has a responsibility to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or we will perish. So the responsibility is there. What we lack is the ability. We will never do that in and of ourselves without the Holy Spirit changing what we want. You say, are we all robots? Nope, we're not robots at all. Everyone who has become a Christian has wanted to become a Christian, and God has given us that want. God has given us that desire. Did you choose Christ if you're a Christian? A hundred percent. Do you know why you chose Christ? Because God gave you a desire to choose him. God opened your eyes to your need for a savior. And that's not a need you or I would have ever seen apart from his sovereign saving grace that we receive as a gift and respond to for our good and his glory. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen. You can't save yourself, but here's something else you can't do. Point number two, you can't unsave yourself. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to put it in quotes so it's allowed. You can't unsave yourself. Our salvation was a work of God from start to finish. You can't click undo what God has done. You cannot undo that. Uh, Still in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and following, we're reminded, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's right there in black and white for us to see. And we need to be reminded that the finish line of running this race well, right? Elsewhere, the word of God gives us this metaphor of our life with Christ, running this race, finishing the race well. The finish line isn't in this life, but it's in the next. And God gets us there, will get us there safe. And sound. In your outline, you see a verse from Romans chapter 8, and it says this Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I put that verse in there because you'll notice he is including things all in the past tense, but some of them haven't happened yet. Right? Those whom he predestined, he hasn't. I've not been glorified. I hope if I'm glorified, it comes out looking better than this. I hope that my beard would connect and lots of things that I'm unhappy with would be a lot better. So this is not, this is not glorified. This is not the glorified self, my glorified mind, my glorified body, not at all. But everything else in verse 30 actually has already happened, right? Those whom he predestined, that happened in eternity past, he also called. And so he put a calling on our lives to come to him. Those whom he called, that happened. He also justified. That happened at least how we understand it in, at the cross, Right? Happened, happened, happened. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why doesn't it say those whom he justified, he will glorify? Because it's as good as done. 
Like, it's as good as done. So Paul wants to overemphasize the fact that this is actually, it's a done deal. It's done. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is as good as done. It already happened. You might remember earlier in Ephesians 2 where it says, he has seated us in the heavenly places. Has seated. Even though now you're sitting, you're like, I'm, I'm seated in a not so heavenly campus. Or if I'm watching online, I'm seated at home. Like, I'm not seated in the heavenly places. Right. He, there's another example of him using the past tense to describe something that is yet to be. But it's as good as done. And so Paul intentionally writes in that way. So you can't save yourself. You can't unsave yourself. And so with that in mind, let's look at our text today and go back to Luke chapter 12. Knowing that salvation is started, accomplished, and finished by God himself. We can't do it on our own. We can't undo it on our own. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and following. Jesus says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And so you might think, what this acknowledging, usually when we acknowledge something in our vernacular, like you acknowledge this, that's usually like responded with a yes or a no, right? It's usually you're asked to acknowledge something. Maybe it's on a form where you check this box to acknowledge that you've read it, or maybe it's on like some long list of legalese on something that you just scroll to the bottom and click that you read it and lie, but it's kind of like acceptable. So you like, like you acknowledge that you have uh, had the opportunity at least to interact with the words that's, that are before you. That's not actually what this word means, which leads us to our third point. You acknowledge Christ before people by living in daily obedience to him. See, the Greek word translated acknowledges actually just means to say the same thing as or to agree with. It actually isn't like, like, is it yes or no? It's not like yes, no binary. It's, it's do, do you agree with this? Do you say the same thing as it? So we acknowledge Christ when we deny ourselves and submit our entire lives to Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, we remember this, these words of Christ in Luke nine twenty three and following. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him, what, deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We also acknowledge Christ as we're transformed to be more like him. Romans 12 and verse 2, Paul tells us, do not be conformed, like don't fall into the mold of this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind. And we've looked at that verse before, right? Transformed in the Greek is the Greek word metamorpho, which reminds us of the English word metamorphosis. So this is a complete change. Caterpillar, butterfly. Not small caterpillar, larger caterpillar. Or or fuzzy caterpillar, fuzzier caterpillar. Caterpillar, butterfly. God's in the process of completely transforming us to look less like ourselves and more like our Savior. We acknowledge Christ as that work of sanctification takes place in our life. We acknowledge Christ by striving to practice righteousness and love for others. Perhaps the Apostle John puts it maybe more straightforward than anyone else. 1 John 3 and verse 10 in your outline. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoa. All right. Okay, here it is. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
It's pretty straightforward. This is how we acknowledge Christ before others. It's in our daily lives. It's not just like if someone comes up to you and says, do you acknowledge Christ as your Savior? And you're like, well, what will you say in that moment? Like, I think I'll say yes. All right, cool. You're good. Like, you're in. That's not what's being spoken about here. It's a lifetime of acknowledgement. Not perfectly, but just, yes, my life agrees with Jesus, which probably is worth asking, worth considering. What about you? How does your everyday, Monday through Saturday life, 166 hours a week when you're not in church, two hours for community group, 163 hours a week when you're not in community group or in church. Does your everyday life acknowledge Jesus before others? Not perfectly. No, one's, no one expects you to be perfect, but just does, it, does your life say the same thing, let's say, Jesus would say? Does your life agree with Jesus? If Jesus was with you and you were speaking, you might be like, if Jesus was with me, I'd let him do the talking. Granted. But let's just say Jesus was with you and you were speaking. Would he listen and be like, yeah, that's about the size of it. Yeah, I agree with that. And Jesus is like, I could have said it better. I'm the son of God. But I agree with what was said. Like he always trumps us, right? So it's like, but I, I, I agree. Yeah, the way, the way she just handled that situation. Not perfect. I'm perfect, Jesus says, but that's good. I agree. I agree with that. That's acknowledging Jesus before people. It's not just in a moment when we're asked a question. It's our life. Does your life... On the whole, generally speaking, say the same thing that Jesus would say. If Christ were in your shoes at school, he would have handled that situation the same. If Christ were in your shoes at work, he would have handled that situation similarly. He would have done better. He always would have done better. But he would have basically handled that situation the same. He would say roughly the same thing. Because again, acknowledging Christ before others isn't whether you'd answer a question correctly. It's whether or not you acknowledge Jesus in your everyday life, by your everyday life. And as a byproduct of true, genuine faith in Jesus. So in Luke 12, verse 8, it says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. And the angels of God is supposed to give us a picture of judgment. Uh, it's a powerful picture. It's a frightening picture. If you notice, anytime angels show up on the scene in the scriptures, uh, usually the first thing they tell the people is like, calm down, don't die, right? Fear not, not here to kill you. I know I could, I'm an angel, but don't, calm down. I got something to say. Don't die yet. I got a job to do. So whenever angels are kind of in the picture, it's, this, it's, it's actually quite frightening, um, quite powerful. It's not a, any mamby-pamby Angel, they, they're probably pretty ripped, at least in my mind. They're, they're cut. And uh, they show up, and they usually have something to say that's pretty important. And so here, Jesus is saying, anyone who acknowledges me before people, during that time, that time of judgment, 
I'll acknowledge before the angels. Hey, angels, sit down. She's mine. That's what I'll do, Jesus says. But it's not an if-then statement like we might read it. If you do this, he'll acknowledge you. If you don't do this, he might not acknowledge you. And then the angels are scary and they hurt you. Do you want the angels to get you? No. Okay, well. It's up to you, right? This isn't like, he sees you when you're sleeping. That's not this. What's being said here is that the natural byproduct of a life that has been impacted by Christ is not perfection, but that's going to happen, right? Glorified, past tense, even though it's in the future. We we have our hope in that. But the natural byproduct of a life that's been impacted by Christ is one who lives a life that, on the whole, agrees with Christ. And so if you're doing that, that means you're obviously have been saved. Jesus is your advocate. He's like, yeah, I'll acknowledge that person. Before the angels. If you don't do that, well, it likely means you're not saved. Not if you don't do it perfectly. But if if they're like, yeah, I don't really try to live a life that, I'm not trying to, really not conscious of Jesus as I live my life. I just kind of live my life and do my best, but I don't care if it really matches. If it matches up with Jesus, great, good for him. I don't super care about that. Well, if you're not acknowledging Jesus with your life, then Jesus will not acknowledge you before the angels before God. Why? Because you're not a, you're not a Christian. And so it's not an if then it's kind of like, if somebody is doing this, it doesn't point to what will happen. If somebody is doing this, it points to what happened or what hasn't happened. Yes. Uh, so-and-so David is living this life. Uh, Susie's living this life. Uh, Rebecca's doing this. Uh, Brian's doing that. Why? Because the Lord has greatly impacted their lives because he died on the cross for them. And that has impacted their hearts and their lives. They're making these decisions. Uh, Verse 10, uh, and everyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. That's good. But, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Will not be forgiven. That's pretty strong language. And I would love to tell you that it says will not be forgiven, but in the Greek it actually means will be. <laughs> That's not the case. Uh, it says will not be forgiven because Jesus means whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so our next point, number four, you need to know that there is a sin God cannot forgive. Cannot and will not. There is a sin that God cannot forgive. Uh, and so there's a little line I came up with, but I ended up submitting my outline already. It's not in your outline, but if you want to write it down or copy it, this is, this is that line. Unbelieving roots produce blasphemous fruits. Uh, unbelieving roots produce blasphemous fruits. When someone has their heart rooted in unbelief, like we see in the Pharisees and the scribes earlier in Luke chapter 11... Rooted in unbelief. I am not believing in Jesus. doesn't matter what he does. I don't believe him. I don't like him. I don't love him. I quasi-hate him. I would also love for him to like go away, preferably die. What blasphemous, when your unbelieving roots bring forth fruit, it brings forth blasphemous fruits. That's what we see here. And so turn back one chapter, if you would, to Luke chapter 11 uh, and verse 14. 
Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. We read this. Now, when he was casting out a demon, he, Jesus, when he was casting out a demon that was mute, uh, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, quote, he casts out demons by Beelzebel, the prince of demons. Okay, so again, we looked at this in weeks past. We're not going to spend a ton of time there, but Jesus is performing a miracle, in this case, casting out a demon. And people there, some of them marveled, wow, can't believe it, that's amazing, I can't believe that just happened, that's so awesome. And then other people said, he did that by the power of the devil. He cast out the demon by the power of the devil. Now, we, if you might remember from that sermon, that doesn't even make logical sense. So it doesn't, that's not the, that's not the point though, but it doesn't make logical sense that he used the power of the devil to hurt the devil, said the Pharisees, which is just, there's no logic to it. But that's not the point. The point is this. Jesus did something by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees and the scribes said, what he just did was evil, wrong, bad, done by the power of Satan. We do not believe it. We do not believe that he is who he says he is. We do not believe that he has the power to do what he did this by the power of Satan. And so that's what we would call Blasphemy. Uh, The Greek word translated blasphemes means to be evil spoken of. Okay, so they're speaking evil of that which is good and righteous. Not neutral, negative. Evil of that which is good and righteous. Unbelieving roots produce blasphemous fruits. The Pharisees, because of their unbelieving hearts and their unbelieving minds, say unbelievable things about Jesus, such as he's using the power of Satan to do what he does. And so the root of their sinful suspicion, as we called it a few weeks ago, is their unbelief. And unbelieving roots produce blasphemous fruits. Now go back to our text today, Luke 12 and verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. We're we're glad to read that, right? Because you need to understand that all of us at some point, either in thought, word, or deed, have essentially spoken against Christ. Uh, We're all, to some degree, converted blasphemers. Uh, Even if you were saved very young, uh, and most of your life has been with Christ, and praise God for that, uh, you are a converted blasphemer. I mean, even as a, I remember changing my kid's Diapers. You might think this is mean, but changing my kid's diapers, it's like I'm trying to change the kid's diaper. He's got fecal matter all up and down his body. I'm trying to do him a favor. It's not for me, bro. It's for you. I'm trying to do him a favor. He's been fed. He has slept. There's no reason for him to be upset, but then he's just arching his back like, you will not take the poop off of me. Just why? 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 Like there's a, a small amount of needs this child has being months old, but just upset. He's a sinner. He has a sinful nature. He lacks the ability to flip me off. This is the best he can do. He arches his back and he's like, you can't do that. No, he's a blasphemer. We're blasphemers. This is, it's in our, it's our nature. It's in our heart. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's very different. And so all of us, to some degree, are converted blasphemers. So praise God for verse 10, which says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. All of us have either in thought, word, or deed, in some way, shape, or form, spoken against 
the Son of Man. But the Pharisees in Luke 11 didn't speak against Jesus. They spoke against the power with which he performed his miracles. And so they're not speaking against Jesus. They're speaking against the power that he uses to do what he does. And saying he's being used by Satan. So it's a complete turnaround. A complete flip on its head. Not only are you not God, we believe you're used by Satan. Not only are you not doing good, we actually believe that you are from hell. You are being used by Satan to accomplish his will. So again, Luke 12.10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's what they did because that's what's on the inside of their hearts. And so you need to understand, it's not like, oh, wow, they were following Jesus so super closely and loved him so much. And then they said the wrong thing and now they're out. No, not at all. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12 and verse 34. And so by them saying that, that shows where their hearts are at. Unbelieving roots produce blasphemous fruits. And verse 10 says, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, you think, well, what does that mean for us today? Well, the specific sin of the Pharisees can't be duplicated today. It just can't be, right? Jesus is not around performing miracles for you to point to and say, I think you're doing that by Satan. So good news, that specific sin can't be duplicated today because Jesus has died, was buried, has resurrected, and has ascended into heaven and is coming again one day, but hasn't come again yet. And so when he's not here performing miracles, you, we don't have the opportunity to be like, I believe you're doing that as a result of Satan. Uh, but listen to me. There is a sin for which no forgiveness will be offered. There is a sin that if it is named among you uh, or me, uh, we will not go to heaven ever, no matter what. There is a sin that God literally can not, will not ever forgive. And it's the sin, it's actually something we just, I think we kind of take a little lightly sometimes because we're like, oh, everybody does that. It's the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief. And we're like, oh, that's it? Like, everybody's an unbeliever at some point. Yep. It's unforgivable. Unpardonable. You see, God requires one thing of people to be saved. And one thing only. At minimum, they must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. At minimum. Thief on the cross, right? Has minutes left to live his life. Minutes before he dies and enters into eternity. Anything you would have asked him to do at that time, he would have said, I can't, I'm on a cross. Right? Anything, anything you would have said, hey, can you do it? He would have been like, I'm on a cross. I am nailed to a cross. He can do nothing. But he can believe. He can believe. He can put his faith, he can put his trust, he can put his confidence in Jesus Christ, and that he does. Minutes before dying, he asked Jesus to remember him. He 
proclaims his faith in Christ. When you come into your kingdom, I know you are who you say you are. And Jesus responds to him, we haven't gotten there, but Lord willing, we, we will one day. Luke 23 and verse 43, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You are in, bro. Do you know that everybody goes to hell for the same reason? Unbelief. Do you know why Adolf Hitler is in hell? It's not because of what he did to the Jews. It's because he didn't believe in Jesus Christ. How that's manifested in people's lives varies from person to person. And some people show their unbelief in way more significant ways because of their position or their status or their role. But nobody's in hell for what they did. They're in hell for what they didn't do. They didn't believe in Jesus Christ. It's unbelief. They did not believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who paid for their sins. And since they did not believe in Jesus Christ, their sin remains. At the last minute, I mean at the buzzer, that thief put his faith in Jesus Christ and was instantly saved. Instantly. But people who do not believe in Jesus Christ, their sin remains. And since their sin remains, their sin debt remains unpaid. And since that debt is unpaid and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23, there must be a payment in the form of a death for all sin. And that payment is owed to God and God will collect. And he collects in one of two ways. Not cash or check, not credit card, gift card, but he collects in one of two ways. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross or through your eternal death in hell. Either way, he will collect a death for every sinner, for every sin, either through Jesus' payment or yours. If someone remains in the sin of unbelief, they are rejecting Jesus' offer for salvation. Unbelieving roots produce blasphemous fruits. When someone rejects Jesus in their unbelief, they are blaspheming against God by rejecting the truth of the gospel. There's no forgiveness for unbelief. Nobody dies not believing in Jesus and gets in. Nobody. Because the one thing you need to, to be forgiven, it's one thing only, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So there's no forgiveness for unbelief. People who persist in their unbelief, if you today are an unbeliever, you need to know you're on thin ice, shaky ground. Yes, there's a lot of people like you. I get it. Yes, you're not the only one. But do understand, you are committing a sin for which there is no forgiveness if you persist in it. If you die in your unbelief, you will not be forgiven and you will go to hell. The Apostle John in his gospel in your outline, John 15 and verse 26 says, But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And so when we as Christians are bearing witness, either by our lives, acknowledging Jesus before people, or literally talking to people about the gospel, when we're bearing witness, who's bearing witness? John 15 says it's really who? The Holy Spirit, right? So when I'm bearing witness, it's, it kind of, it's, in a sense, it takes the pressure off of me. Like coming to this realization realizes, you know what? If this person rejects the message that I'm giving them, they're not really, they think they're rejecting me, but the Bible says that it's the Holy Spirit who bears witness about Christ. So they're really rejecting who? God. 
right? They're rejecting the Holy Spirit's work through a believer to a non-believer. And so they're rejecting the Holy Spirit. They're rejecting God, presenting the gospel to them through the mouth of a man or woman or a boy or a girl who's been saved. And therefore, they are rejecting God. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There is no hope for someone who continues their whole life and dies in their unbelief. Since there's no salvation for the person who dies in unbelief and unrepentance, their persistent unbelief is, quite frankly, an unpardonable sin. It kind of kind of calls to mind, if you're a believer, people whom you really care about who are unbelievers, doesn't it? They're in a bad way. Hopefully, you realize from the first part of our sermon that you and me would have been just as bad off had God not intervened, changed our hearts, changed our minds, and given us a desire for Christ. Hopefully, your testimony of how God has done that in your life, whenever he did that, if you are a believer, gives you great hope. That if God could reach a sinner like you, he can reach a sinner like that. Hopefully, when you see this account of the thief on the cross that we just mentioned in passing, you're like, man, there's so much hope. Look what God does. It saves people within minutes. Changes their hearts and minds and gives them a brand new eternal destiny. There's so much hope. But it calls to our mind... How sometimes we can flippantly just say, yeah, they're an unbeliever. My, for my neighbors are unbelievers. Whew. Not saying it's wrong. For you. That's probably true if you're saying that. But that sin is unpardonable, inexcusable, unforgivable. They will repent of that sin or that is the sin that will take them to hell. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Right? Without faith, you can't please God. So it's the one thing. It's like you got one job in order to please God. Have faith in Jesus. Like, that's the one thing I don't want to do. It's like, well, then that's not going to be forgiven. You only need to do one thing to please God, and that's have faith in him. Believe in the truth of the gospel. And let's say your response is, that's the one thing I will. I'll do everything else. I love, I like Christians. I like how they do good. I like how they're generous. I like how they're... I even like the fellowship idea. I like hanging out with them. They're pretty nice, mostly on the whole. Like, I like them. I want to do things like them. I just don't want to believe in what they believe in. I have no hope or pardon for you. I have no forgiveness to offer you from God because that's the one thing that is required of believers. And so the good news is we can't commit the unpardonable sin Exactly as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes did. But the bad news is there is still a sin for which no pardon is offered. But there's hope in Christ. By believing in him, that unpardonable sin becomes forgiven and is no longer named among you. And you have faith in Christ. And that's great news. The rest of our text says... When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. This might be like, um, thanks, that's a little hard. Wow, okay, so 
just read about like, wow, it seems like whether or not I reject Christ or how I acknowledge him in my life. And you're saying, don't worry about it when you're like, death is on the line and what you say in a moment of pressure. Like, don't worry about what might come out. Because oftentimes in our life, the circumstances in our life kind of, they'll, they'll shake us and they'll shake what's already inside. And sometimes just a all it takes is just a little shake, and all of a sudden you can see what was inside to begin with. You're like, why did, why did water come out of that? And you're like, because you shook it. Well, yeah, that's part of the reason. The other reason is there was water to begin with. That's why Kool-Aid didn't come out. So since there was water in here to begin with, when a life circumstance comes along, it's always going to shake what's inside out. And so life circumstances, including trials, show us what's on the inside of us. And so here's this situation where uh, God is telling us, don't worry about when your life is shaken that much, what you'll say in that moment, because I'll just give you the words to say. He's like, oh. So I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 22, and as you do that, I'm going to tell you what might be, somebody disagreed with me the first service, it's either the first or second most embarrassing thing I'll ever say from the stage of my entire life. Uh, Luke 22. I'd like to think that there's a, that I'm at least somewhat helpful as a dad and as a husband. I'm not perfect. There's lots I can't do, but um, try to help, try to serve, try to lead, try to set a good example. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not easily grossed out, right? I'm not easily Honestly, so like I so like I changed the kids' diapers. Not a big, not a big deal. Um, like you know, anybody who's had a boy has been peed on, right? My son Justin peed not recently, right? But but I mean like like I'd, I've been soiled by my children, all sorts of bodily fluids and yeah. What do you want? I mean, mucus and pus and gook and all this other stuff is. It's not a big deal. It really is not. I don't. Do vomit well. I'm pretty sure whatever you're thinking right now is less intense than what I'm thinking right now when I say I don't do vomit well. I'm convinced that if my kids were bleeding out, I could pull it together and help. I don't know how I could help, but I could do it. But if they're like, I'm like, I'm gone. I'm out. I'm out. I don't, it's not, it's not that it grosses me out so much. It doesn't make me want, like, I'm going to do it too. No, it doesn't do that to me. It's, I, I can't even explain it. It's just, it's really ridiculous. It's pointless. I had somebody at the end of the last service be like, I get it. I'm like you. And they explained a medical condition they have that makes vomiting really difficult. I'm like, that's not ridiculous. That's legit. I'm ridiculous. I have no medical, Sarah thinks, it's, so I can actually probably count on one hand how many times I vomited as an adult. Sarah thinks I lack experience with vomit. So since I'm, I'm not, it's kind of not my story. Like stomach bugs come through our entire family. One just passed through, right? One even boomeranged around and hit some of the kids twice within two weeks. It was a, uh, it was a doozy. I get none of it. I don't know why. I go to other countries. People get sick from the water. I get none of it. I don't know why. It's not a flex. Wish I could say I work really hard for that. It's just, I just don't. I don't. All right. I don't. And, and it just, you're like, so what does that look like? If you say you don't handle vomit well, I'm glad you asked. I would love to tell you. So like, there's this one time when Sarah's out shopping. I think she's at home goods or some crafty place, Michael's. I don't know. She's out shopping and I'm home. This is years ago. We're in our old house and uh, Justin's really little and he's sleeping. And um, 
Uh, I had put him to bed, and then all of a sudden I hear uh, from down the hall what I think sounds like um, the unpartable sin, vomit. Like, no, no. But what, what I think sounds like him getting sick. And so it, in fact, is that. And I walk into the bedroom. I'm a grown man. I drive a car. I help run a church. Like, I can do things. But I lose it. All right? I become panicky. I walk into the bedroom, and I see him sitting there. He looks all sorry. He had just thrown, thrown up, and it's, 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 it's on the bed. Look, I even have trouble talking about it. It's on the bed. It's in the comforter. And so I do all that I know to do, which is panic. And so I, I, I remove his clothes, and I put him in the bathtub, and then I go back in, and I take off the, the, the soiled uh, uh, bed sheets and stuff, and I take that, and I throw that in the, in the bathroom as well, and I do what I need to do, the equivalent of calling 911. I call Sarah. I'm like, Sarah, she picks up, she goes, hello. She's talking to somebody from church at the store. Okay, so picture her tone of voice, my tone of voice. I'm like, you got to come home. And she's like, hey, how you doing? How's it going? What's going, hey, what's, what's happening? And I'm like, Justin threw up and everything is horrible and I'm not sure what to do. And I put him in the bathtub and I think he's okay. I think he's done. I don't hear him. So she's like, okay, so you're watching him off? I was like, no, I'm not. The water is not on. He is standing in the bathtub completely naked. And his garments that are soiled are near. I mean, I'm an idiot. I'm a moron. I'm not this way. But for some reason, I don't know why, I just get that way. And so she gets home and she's like, okay. And she does a normal adult thing. Not, not just as heroic as any other human would be, except me. I don't know why. And I'm like, I've just, I'm, I'm kind of useless. It's weird. And so one time, Emma... My only daughter, she's a little, same house. Maybe it was the house. She had thrown up, but Sarah was home this time, so it's okay, I could hide. <laughs> Behind her being the man that I am. And so, so she, I mean, I take the kids to the hospital. I'm the hospital guy. Like, I'm not afraid of the, like, but Joe McVicker broke his collarbone <laughs> in the lobby of our church <clears throat> during a youth event. All right? He broke his collarbone. I drove him to the hospital. All I could ask him with, all I asked him while we were driving was, you think you're going to throw up? <laughs> Literally, he's there like this. He's like, no, I think I'm good. I'm like, all right, what about now? He's like, no, I'm fine. Are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm fine. It's fine. He, this is on my mind, top of mind. Anyway, back to Emma. Emma is, uh, she, got, she got sick. She had thrown up. Sarah had taken care of her. And she said, just go and check on her. I said, okay. So she's all cleaned up. And so I'm holding her little pudgy baby body. And she is... She is, her, her, her head is on my shoulder, her pudgy little cheeks. Calm down. It's worse than what you're thinking. You, you think you know where I'm going. You do not. For sure do not. Okay, so she's, her, her head is resting there. And Sarah comes back in and goes, oh, sweet baby. And puts her hand on her, on her back. And I'm like saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just a real loving, tender moment with parents in there at the time, baby girl. And uh, then I, it's not what you think. Just wait. I then remove her from my shoulder. I put, stop, you're wrong. You're wrong. I put her in front of me to give her a little kiss on her pudgy little cheeks. It's not what you think. Let me finish. It's not what you think. She makes a sound. She makes a sound that I interpret to be she's going to throw up. Do you ever wonder what you would do in a moment of stress and crisis? Like, that's when your heart is really shown. Right? I did not train for this. I did not plan for this. 
So watch my hands. She makes this sound, and I do this. <laughs> Towards my wife. She's standing here. I just, in a moment, like out of, that's just what was in the heart, man. Right there. I literally just do this. And I make this really masculine, scared face. of Like that. She, the child doesn't throw up. But Sarah looks at me and goes, literally, she goes, okay, okay, and takes Emma and tends to her. I don't, I don't do vomit. You ever wonder how you would act in a moment like that? In that moment is when your heart's revealed. You can't plan for that. And we're laughing, and I am an idiot when it comes to this stuff. Granted. But I would have never thought in that moment, like, what would you probably do if Sarah was standing there? She's like, no, I don't think I would do that. But I for sure did that. Uh, In Luke 22, uh, verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, verse 33, said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Uh, In fact, in other accounts of the Gospels, He says, I will. I know these guys won't. I've kind of been wondering about them to begin with. But, like, I'm not one of the 11. I don't know if you know, like, I'm the real deal. I'm Peter. So maybe they'll they'll deny. In fact, I'm glad you brought this up. I was kind of wondering if they they were real. But Jesus says, verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. Like, rooster won't crow. Not like, one day it's going to be hard. This day. It's nighttime. The rooster will not go cock-a-doodle-doo before you deny me three times. And Peter's like, I, that's not going to happen. Right? Even now that I know, now I'll make sure I don't do that. Like, this is not, I'm not going to do that. Uh, skip down to verse 54. It says, then they seized him. Let him away, bring him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. I'm going to read this kind of quickly. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. Then a servant girl, a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. That's one. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And other gospel accounts say Peter cussed when he said that. And immediately, verse 60, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. That's quite an aha moment, right? It gets better. 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Being carried away.
And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went away and wept bitterly. Now you read that and you're thinking, if Peter didn't fare well, I'm probably not going to be awesome. Like Peter walked on water with Jesus. That's kind of a memorable thing, right? Blessed buoyancy is not something we would forget. Peter watched Jesus teach in person. Peter saw Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Peter's the one who said, I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When all others wouldn't answer, it's Peter. And so you look at that and you're like, I don't know how I'd fa-. Like if he failed that test. And we're reading all about this stuff in Luke 12 about how I'm going to, will my life acknowledge Christ? Will I say the right thing? Will I act in the right way? Peter jacked it up. How am I not going to mess this up? But that's our last point. God promises to protect, comfort, strengthen, and teach, and empower you to represent him well when you need it most. In Luke 12, verses 11 and following, it says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. It's like, oh, really? Just don't, like, that's not a thing? I shouldn't think about that at all? I feel like this really matters. You've just told me. Uh, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What if that's on the inside? What if when my life is shaken, that's what comes out? I didn't know that was on the inside because I'd never been shaken this much. What if I'm not a believer? What if I am a believer? I don't know how I'm going to act. Verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You say, well, what happened with Peter? I'll tell you what happened with Peter. Peter had Jesus beside him. But you know what he didn't have? The Holy Spirit. Do you know you're in better shape to handle that situation than the Apostle Peter was? If you're a believer, you have God living inside of you. Peter did not. Pentecost had not happened yet. And so when we read these words, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say, we can think, he'll hold me. He'll help me. And as Peter receives the Holy Spirit, he lives a life that isn't perfect, but he is spirit-empowered and helped to represent Christ well. God promises to protect you, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to teach you, and to empower you to represent him well. In your outline, finally, as we close, is Luke 21, which we haven't gotten to in our sermon series yet. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, before all this, they will lay their hands on you. Follow along this. Read this. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You're like, oh, is it? Wait, okay, wait a minute. So it's a word of warning, a word of warning. This is going to happen. And Jesus is like, this is a prime witnessing opportunity. And you're like, wait, what? When I'm about to die? That's what he says. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. You're like, well, I probably should think about what I'm going to say. Nope. Read 14. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Like, you can't prepare. You can't study for this. Don't even think about how you're going to answer in that moment. Why? Verse 15. For I, Jesus, will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. It's that in-the-moment grace. That in-the-moment wisdom that he'll give us even in our darkest hour. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. 
You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. It's funny, you said some of us would be put to death. Yes, but for the believer, death does not equal perishing. Death equals a transformation from this life to the next. Some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And you say, I don't think I have that. And that's the good news is that God does. He's got you covered. He's responsible for our salvation from start to finish. He will keep us and help us finish even to the bitter end. Hallelujah. What a Savior. God in heaven, would you use this time uh, to help us help us where we doubt, where we're scared, where we fear, where we think we would fail, and remind us that you will hold us, you will keep us, that you are bigger and more powerful and more uh, strong. You're stronger than any one of our earthly problems, even when our lives are on the line. And Lord, would you save people from the truly unpardonable sin of not believing in your son? Grant them the gift of faith for their good, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.